0: Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're returning to our series in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we have spent the last few weeks considering uh, verses 4 through 10, uh, very important passage, not only in Peter's overall argument in 1 Peter, but just a standout passage in a major way in God's Word. We'll be considering this morning uh, two transitional verses in verses 11 and 12. Uh, I'd like to ask that though for context, we read beginning in verse 9 and we'll read through verse 12. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, follow along as I read uh, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." And now these are the verses we'll consider this morning. "'Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day visitation. Uh, These two verses really are transitional verses in Peter's overall argument. Uh, Much of the book up to this point has been in the indicative mood, uh, telling the uh, uh, Christians scattered in Asia Minor who they are and what God has done on their behalf, and now there's a transition uh, here in 1 Peter 2, especially verse 12, to consider now the public conduct and public morality of the people of God and how they live before the Gentiles around them. In the previous verses up to this point, Peter has reminded these Christians of their new birth, of their hope through the resurrection, their privileged status in redemptive history as as those who have benefited from the ministry of the prophets of old. He has called them to set their minds on the grace of the Lord Jesus that will be brought to them at the resurrection, to be thinking ahead and looking ahead to the grace of God that's going to come to them at Christ's appearing. He has called them to purity and holiness of life, and He has told them their privileged identity that they have as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and as God's special elect people. And now, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we have this transition, an introduction to a new section entirely. And the focus uh, from here through the next couple of chapters is on the public conduct, the public morality of the people of God and how that manifests itself in various situations and in varying relationships. So, so from verse 12 on, uh, Peter is going to apply these verses to various relationships, such as, like we'll see next week, the relationship of Christians to Their leaders, and to governors, and to the emperor, how they carry themselves and conduct themselves as public citizens of the empire, and how they relate to those who are rulers and authorities. Peter will go from there to consider the relationship of those who are servants to their masters. And I don't think we should view that so narrowly as those who are in slavery, but it might even have broader implications than that. Uh, But but how we submit and how we relate to those who are masters. Over us. Again, you can see the emphasis is on the public conduct of the people of God. He's going to speak then in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 of the relationship between husbands and wives. And uh, verses 1 through 6, it appears that Peter's primary attention is given to wives who have to live with unbelieving husbands or husbands who disobey the Word. And the focus in that passage will be on their conduct. Uh, not just the things they say or the things they think internally in their own hearts or their prayers for their husbands. He focuses on their behavior and on their pure and respectable conduct. And then in verse 7, he addresses the husbands and similarly focuses on their conduct toward their wives. And then in the following chapter, the rest of chapter 3 and in chapter 4 as well, Uh, Peter focuses on how Christians respond to the worlds around them, particularly the opposition and the hostility that they might experience in relation to uh, the Gentiles and to uh, the worldly people around them. You can see in all of this, Peter is now making a heavy transition, a significant transition to consider the holiness of Christians, particularly as it is on display before others. And how that public conduct takes shape in various relationships that these Christians will encounter. In our text this morning, in verses 11 and 12, he's really introducing this new section. And Peter is speaking in these verses of a matter of urgency to him uh, the urgency of fighting sin, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, of engaging in spiritual warfare, and the urgency of of living before and exuding before the world, holy, godly, and good public conduct before the Gentiles. In essence, I would summarize Peter's concerns in these two verses and the verses to come. In essence, his concern is with holiness. Uh, Holiness, first of all, we'll see in verse 11, manifested in the mortification of sin and the putting off of sinful desires and the passions of the flesh. And then in verse 12 and the many verses thereafter holiness as it is manifested in our public visible conduct before the people of the world. But we'll see in these verses Peter assume a tone, and to use vocabulary, that communicates this sense of urgency about our holiness of life as Christians. Peter is going to impress upon us the import, the urgency, the necessity of fighting sin and of living holy lives to God and of publicly exuding holy conduct before the world for the sake of our witness. So here's how I'd like to outline our time this morning. Three main points to consider verses 11 and 12. We'll consider, first of all, the urgency of holiness to the apostle Peter. Secondly, the urgency of holiness for the sake of the soul. And thirdly and finally, the urgency of holiness for the sake of Christian witness. The urgency of holiness to Peter the urgency of holiness for the sake of the soul, the urgency of holiness for Christian witness. Consider with me first the urgency of holiness to the apostle Peter. Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. A few things to observe here. First of all, Peter writing these words refers to his audience as beloved. Uh, this is an affectionate and familiar term. It is different from the more generic term, uh, brethren, perhaps, that he might use to address us. Uh, This term, beloved, is a favorite term of the Apostle Paul and of the Apostle John. It's also a favorite term of the Apostle Peter. He uses that term, beloved, to describe his audience seven times between the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter. This is the first time he uses the term. But he's communicating something here now, familiarity and warmth. He wants them to know, I love you. You are beloved and dear to me. And typically, when this phrase is used, whether it's in Paul's writings or John's writings or Peter's writings, uh, the ascription, the beloved, is followed by a very significant exhortation. Uh, typically, it's a way to, to draw the reader in, and I think that's how it functions here. So, he refers to them as his beloved, and his next words are the words, I urge you. Beloved, dear ones, you who are loved by me in the Lord, I urge you. Now, appreciate the one who's writing these words. This is the Apostle Peter. He is writing 30 to 35 years on from the events of Jesus' death, uh, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, He is one who had walked and lived with the Lord for three plus years. He has now served the Lord as an apostle for three plus decades, and he has, in a sense, seen it all. He has had an extraordinary ministry. He's preached to thousands. He's seen mass conversions. He has spoken in tongues. He has been arrested, uh, beaten, and imprisoned. He has seen miracles, and he himself has perform miracles in service to Christ. He has seen churches planted, controversies rise and fall. He has buried saints in the Lord. He has seen professing Christians fall away. He is a seasoned veteran apostle. He knows a thing or two, and he understands perhaps better than anyone else the things in the Christian life and in the ministry of the church that are a matter of importance, and he knows what things really or not. I say all of that to say this is a seasoned man writing to a beloved band of Christians who are dear to his heart, and this is the man who now turns to them to urge them, to bring to them a matter of urgency. He says, I urge you, beloved. The word used for urge, translated urge, is a strong Greek word. Uh, It could be translated, I beseech you. I beg you, I passionately implore you, I urge you, beloved. So this is a matter of urgency to Peter and we should feel the full weight of of, of this statement from Peter because of who it's coming from. The inspired apostle is bringing a matter of urgency to these beloved Christians. The last thing to notice before leaving this point is that Peter once again reminds them of who they are. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That is, He's urging them in their capacity as sojourners and exiles. If I encourage you, brothers and sisters, you who are members of Emmanuel, if I said, I want to encourage you as members of Emmanuel to come to the congregational meeting on February 28th, you you would appreciate by referring to you as members of Emmanuel, I'm I'm trying to convey something there that, that this is a meeting that you have a special place in. This is a meeting you in a special way are a part of. Well, similarly, that's how the language functions here. Peter is signaling something by this language, sojourners and exiles. He doesn't say, I urge you as the children of God. He doesn't say, I urge you as those who have been redeemed. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He wants to call this to their minds, that in this world, they are sojourning, they are passing through, and they are exiles. He's reminding them, this is not your home. And this is altogether appropriate because he is introducing, he is about to introduce a section in which he will instruct his readers in how to live and conduct themselves before the world in varying relationships, a world that is hostile to them, how they're to live in foreign territory in a place that is not their home. Peter says they are sojourners. They are passing through, they are moving toward a heavenly kingdom, and this world is not their home. This is the prevailing awareness he wants his readers to have, that they are sojourners and exiles in the world, members of a new race and a holy nation, members of a kingdom yet to come, and it is to shape the way they think about their lives in the present age. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What we see in this epistle is that a belonging to God and membership among his people makes you an exile in this world not just, and we should appreciate this, not just in certain social and cultural contexts particularly hostile to Christianity. So, Peter's not envisioning martyrs who literally are dying for the faith, though some of these Christians may be in such a situation. He's saying this is standard for Christians. This is ordinary All of us by virtue of being members of the new kingdom, of being members of the chosen race and the holy nation, we are all exiles in this world whether or not the governing authorities are especially hostile to the cause of Christianity. All Christians are exiles in this world. All Christians are called to march to the beat of a different drummer. To march under a different flag altogether. Christians live by the ethics of a different kingdom. Their absolute allegiance belongs to no man but to God. The title we've given to this series in 1 Peter is Living as Exiles. What follows really in the rest of this book is Peter telling these Christians how they are to live in this hostile world as exiles. And Peter sees this as a matter of urgency. He turns to these beloved Christians, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and then he exhorts them in how they are to live. So now let's move to the second point. We've seen the urgency of holiness to the apostle Peter. This is a matter of urgency to Peter. Secondly, consider with me the urgency of holiness for the sake of the soul. Peter does not immediately focus on public conduct before the world. We read in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, Peter doesn't first focus on public morality. In the first place, he's concerned with the inner man. He's concerned with the state of the soul and the spiritual warfare that is taking place, which of course will have implications for their public conduct. But first of all, he encourages them. In their own hearts, in their own lives, by faith, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he focuses on how indulgence in the passions of the flesh wages war against the soul, how it infects the inner man, the inner life of the Christian. Uh, the word here is abstain. He calls these Christians, he urges these Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's a strong verb. It means to distance oneself from something or someone, or to utterly do away with something, to separate oneself from something, uh, or to abstain from, distance ourselves from, to do away with the passions of the flesh. It's a strong verb. Now, what are the passions of the flesh? Well, they are those sins we particularly associate with the body, such as lust, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and gluttony. Rage and outbursts of anger, violence against others, even intense feelings of jealousy and covetousness. These things and other like passions of the flesh are to be rejected, we're to distance ourselves from these things, abstain from these things, to have nothing to do with them. Later on in this epistle in chapter 4. Uh, we have a passage that illuminates the passage uh, we're currently in. Here, Peter says a little bit more about what he's talking about. If you'll just turn a page over to 1 Peter 4. Uh, there we read in 1 Peter 4, verse 2, uh, these Christians are exhorted to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's a dichotomy there. We can live for human fleshly passions, or we can live according to the will of God. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, listen to this verse 4 with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In other words, these Christians weren't joining in to this sinful bacchanal of of revelry and ungodliness. Uh, Rather, they were separate from it. They were abstaining from these sinful passions. And Peter says, they malign you for this. You don't join in with them, and therefore they're offended by you. Verse 5, but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You appreciate Peter's point. These things have no place among the Christian community. We're to abstain from them And this has huge implications, of course, for our public conduct in the world. We don't go and pursue uh, the passions of the flesh and the way they manifest themselves in all kinds of ways in our culture today. But before he goes there to the public conduct and how abstaining from these passions will affect our public morality, Peter highlights how the passions of the flesh impact the inner life of the believer. He says these passions of the flesh, they wage war against the soul. He's not talking now about outward hostilities. He's talking about an inward warfare. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul, which amounts to one of the main reasons why holiness, brothers and sisters, is a matter of such urgency for the Christian because sin The passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. Peter here is articulating what the Lord articulates in various places and what the Apostle Paul also articulates, and that is that within each Christian, young and old, no matter how long you've been walking with Christ, within each Christian there is a warfare going on between the soul united to Christ and the remaining sin and corruption within, the passions of the flesh which we all must endure. You have the soul united to Christ on one side, the passions of the flesh on the other, and it's not pictured in Scripture as a neutral cohabitation or a kind of uncomfortable living arrangement that we just sort of tolerate and endure. The language of Scripture is all-out warfare. These passions of the flesh war against the soul united to Christ. They are personified as having a will, as taking action, as actually waging war. Sin seeks to assault the Christian on every front. Sin seeks to bend the Christian. To its will. Sin is acting. Sin is doing. The passions of the flesh are seeking to exert their influence and to press the Christian and to influence the Christian and to destroy the Christian, and we must be wary, Peter tells us. We must be prepared for the fight of our lives. Brother, sister, may I solemnly warn you in the gravest of terms that sin's desire is to have you. Satan wants to destroy you. The passions of the flesh want to one day walk over the corpse of your dead faith. The passions of the flesh are remaining sin and corruption, they're acting, they're doing, and they are seeking to destroy you and to upend your faith. They will show no quarter, therefore, you must show no quarter. You must fight, you must wage war, and in Jesus' name and by His grace you must prevail. You must give the most serious attention to this issue. You must allow yourself to be gripped by the urgency of this matter. The Lord Himself would have us think daily about this even as He taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which we believe is a daily prayer, we're to pray for our daily bread, right? What is one of those petitions in that very short prayer? We're to go to the Lord every day, and we're to ask him, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, evil is assaulting us, attacking us, waging war against us. So we're to pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does the Lord Jesus say uh, with respect to sins of the eye and of the hand? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What is that? That's, that's warfare. That's holy violence. Better to go into heaven with one hand than to go into hell with two hands. And listen, Peter was there on that mountain. The sermon was addressed to the Lord's disciples, even though there were crowds around them. It is addressed to disciples and, and, and Peter was there on the mountain when the Lord gave these words. He saw the look in his eye. He heard the tone of his voice. And so when Peter says 30, 35 years on, that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul, when he urges us to mortify our sins and to fight the sins of the body and the sins of the flesh, he knows what he's talking about. He would have detected the urgency and the Lord himself as he spoke to his disciples about the effects of sin. This should grip us with a heightened degree of sobriety and seriousness. Uh, The passions of the flesh, brother and sister, they're waging war against your soul. Now it's just my observation from the standpoint of church history that the present generation of Christians generally do not give as much thought to the matter of spiritual warfare and to the urgency of fighting against sin as previous generations. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I love the Puritans so much and why I encourage people to read the Puritans. They had such a passion for holiness and such a passion for mortifying sin and living godly lives unto God. I think I've told this story before, but uh, William Gernall, the Puritan uh, from uh, Lavenham in uh, Suffolk in England uh, wrote 1,240 pages of commentary on 11 verses in Ephesians 6, the passage on spiritual warfare. The book is called The Christian in Complete Armor. And that was so serious a matter to Gernal that in many ways it was his life's work, his magnum opus, to help Christians in the fight against sin. Some of you will have heard of John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. I made reference to this. Uh, in my address at the Feed My Sheep conference last fall. Uh, What many don't know about that book is that it was not penned in some detached rural parish. Uh, It was not written in an ivory tower. The book was originally a series of sermons preached to Oxford undergraduates, most of them teenagers. And in that book, Owen says this, and you teenagers watching, and indeed Everyone watching should take these words to heart. Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so while we live in this world. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. One of the great strengths of Owen's book is that he personifies sin often. He envisions sin as having a will, as having designs on the Christian, much like the Lord and the Apostle Paul and like Peter speak. So he says in another place, Owen does, sin does not only still abide in us, but is still acting. Still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. Listen to this. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own way, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Here's what he means. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust, might it have its way, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. We, we should think about that when tempted to indulge the flesh. Well, it's just a little taste. It's just a little sin. It's just one little look. It's just one little click. It's just one quick dabbling in this or in that. I'm just giving in this one time to this impulse that I feel. We should recognize that sin that we are willing to indulge or to wink at, it is like an open grave that is never satisfied. Sin's desires to have you and destroy you and the passions of the flesh, as Peter says, they're waging war against your soul. Like, wake up, Christians. Be mindful of this. You can sense the urgency in Owen. It's an urgency that was in the Lord himself, and it's an urgency reflected in Peter in our passage. The urgency of fighting sin, living for holiness for the sake of the soul. And we all should be gripped by the seriousness of this. Brothers and sisters, just pastorally, I want to put this on our radar. This is why I've spent more time on this point this morning. Don't allow yourself to slide. Don't allow yourself to drift. I'm very thankful that the man I studied uh, uh, at Southeastern Seminary with, uh, one of the things he told me, one of the most valuable pieces of advice he gave me, I chose him to study with because not only was he a professor but a pastor as well, he told me, Alex, you never drift into holiness. You never drift into holiness. Like if we're going to drift at all, the current is moving the way of the world. The current is moving in the direction of sinful lusts and passions of the flesh. The current is moving us away from Christ, away from God, away from His Word, and towards sin and Satan and destruction and that open grave. We don't drift into holiness. No one makes strides in sanctification without faith-fueled, Spirit-empowered effort. Brother and sister, if you've begun to drift in your life, I just solemnly warn you with the words of the Apostle Peter. Peter. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. They are only waging war against your soul. I urge you to be alert, to fight against those passions and to not allow yourself to slide or to drift. I have to move on from this point, but just one last word here, brother, sister, evil desires and sinful passions are to be expected. Peter doesn't direct this to a particular few really weak Christians in the church, all of us are subject to the attacks of the passions of the flesh, and the call is for us to fight them. And listen to me, this is a serious call to sober up and to fight sin for the sake of your soul, but I just want to encourage you, brother, sister, Christ is with you, and He will help you He has given you his spirit, he's given you his word, he's given you the church, you can do this. In the strength that Christ supplies, you can overcome your sin and you can walk over the bellies of your lusts. The one who is at work in you, John says, is greater than the one who is in the world. So even as Peter urges us to fight our sin, I just want to encourage you, Christ will help you. And you have his help and his succor and his aid in the work of mortifying your sin. All right, thirdly and finally, we've considered the urgency of holiness to the apostle Peter, the urgency of holiness for the sake of the soul. Consider with me thirdly, the urgency of holiness for the sake of Christian witness. The urgency of holiness for the sake of Christian witness. This is an urgent matter to Peter. It's urgent because Sin is waging war against our souls, therefore we should be holy. Now, let's consider its urgency for our public conduct, our Christian witness. Holiness for Christians is not only an urgent matter for the sake of the soul. Peter now moves to his larger point, and that is the importance of holiness of life in our public witness as Christians. And here the focus is on public conduct. And as we'll see, holiness becomes for the Christian, a key to his or her witness in the world. Verse 12, Peter says, still urging these Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep it good, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see visible, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are a number of things we should observe here. First of all, Peter makes a shift, as I said, from the inner spiritual arena of the soul and now focuses more narrowly on our public conduct. How we live before others is the issue. What we say, what we do, how we behave before the world. Peter focuses on our lives lived before the people around us. It's our public conduct that he has in mind. He's not thinking now primarily about interpersonal piety, he's thinking about public outward conduct. This is the issue, that which is visible, that which can be seen, how we behave in the theater of action, the world of action and doing and conduct. And then Peter says, the goal is that Christian conduct would be honorable, depending on what translation using the Greek word is kalos, could be an honorable, good, even excellent It is conduct that is morally beautiful, morally right, and excellent. There is to be something attractive about the Christian's conduct in the world, something wholesome, something winsome. The attended effect is that people would see it, the conduct, the acting, the doing of Christians, and they would come to want it, to desire it, to see it as good and lovely. Peter's overall concern is with their witness because as we see in the next clause, he envisions what their witness is and how people perceive them. The Gentiles, he says, are speaking evil of these Christians. Pay attention to your conduct because they're speaking evil of you. Now, at this point, a lot of the commentators speculate as to what is behind this phrase for Peter. Was Peter aware? of some conspiracy against these Christians? Did these Christians have a particularly bad reputation they had to work to overcome? Uh, Were these charges against Christians uh, related to those more general charges that some historians have told us about? We know that many Christians uh, in those early days were uh, accused of cannibalism because they spoke of eating the body and blood of uh, the Lord. So they were slandered as cannibals. Uh, they were slandered as those who engaged in incest. And the reason for that is because so thick was the idea of a family among the church community uh, that they referred to one another as brother and sister. And brothers and sisters in the church would sometimes meet and marry each other, and so they were accused of incest. One of the largest and most significant criticisms leveled at Christians in those early days was that they were Uh, insubordinate to the government or had radical views that somehow made them a threat to the government, so the officials were always wary about this new Christian cult. Uh, They did not recognize the emperor as Lord. They said that Jesus was Lord, and that was considered a very dangerous idea. Uh, So, what does Peter have in view? The Gentiles are speaking evil of these Christians. What does he have in mind? Well, I don't think, my take is not that we should Try to explore behind that phrase some hidden meaning there. I think Peter is envisioning the sort of general garden variety, hatred, and hostility from the world that is the lot of every true Christian. You know this, right? As as one reads the New Testament, uh, we learn that opposition from the world is not exceptional but is rather ordinary, standard for the Christian. It's the default mode. The world is hostile toward the Christian faith. The hostility of the world is just like background music to the Christian. It's always going on. It's like elevator music. Like this is, this is the world we live in. A world that is hostile to Christians and the things that they believe. We considered this when we looked at Jesus' words in the upper room in John 15, I think that our brother Zach preached from these verses. Uh, There in John 15, in verse 18, the Lord says this to his disciples there in the upper room. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world like elect exiles, called, chosen, you're a new race, a new nation. You're not of the world anymore. This world is not your home. I called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Not because you're particularly obnoxious, uh, not because uh, you wear jean skirts and make homemade bread, not because uh, you have some uh, quirky uh, social tics about you. The world hates you because it hated me and because you identify with me and because I called you out of the world to make you my own. And if the world hated me, it's going to hate you, as Jesus goes on to say. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This kind of hatred from the world is normal for Christians. We should not view it as extraordinary. You can imagine what it was like for these Christians in particular and what, what things might have invited the hostility of the world. They were exiles in the world. They didn't view the world as their home. They did not worship the other gods of the nations. They did not syncretize Jesus in with all of their other former idols they would not acknowledge Caesar as the Lord. They would not engage in all the idolatry, the drunken revelries, the orgies, the worldly events promoted and celebrated by the world around them. They didn't participate in those things. They didn't go along with the world. Remember in chapter 4 verse 4 that I read a moment ago, Peter said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They hate that you don't participate in their worldly events and go after the passions of the flesh as they do. They despise you because you don't share with them in what Peter calls their flood of debauchery. The Christians were different, they stood out. They were, in the best sense of the phrase, countercultural. And like them, so we are called to the same sort of thing today in our generation. Friends, increasingly in our context, like 21st century American context, increasingly the way of the Lord, the path of righteousness, Psalm 1, the pathway of discipleship, of following Jesus and living by His code of ethics will increasingly put us in conflict with the world. The truths we claim, the things we believe, the convictions our faith leads us to embrace, they will invite the opposition of the world. Or at least they should. So, at this point, it's worth asking, my friend, just want to challenge you. Do you present anything in your life in your beliefs, in your convictions for the world to oppose? Or do you just fit in seamlessly to the world's ways of thinking and acting in your speech and in your conduct? If someone observed your life alongside the life of the average worldling, would they discern a difference? I sure hope so. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes what he calls the course of the world. Remember, Jesus used that strong dichotomy. You're not of the world. I called you out of the world. Well, what is the course of the world like? Paul describes it for us in Ephesians 2. To follow the course of this world is to follow the prince of the power of the air, he says. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It is, as Paul says, to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The Apostle John will say in 1 John 2, I think it is, all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. In John 3, the world is described as being in darkness. They hate the light. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is the world for you. And if that is the world, we as the people of God, as those who have been born again, as members of the chosen race and the holy nation, and those called to be holy as God is holy, there could only be, there must only be, the sharpest contrast between followers of Christ and the people of this world. That, that course that I described, that Paul describes, that's not our course. We are not of the world. That's not us. There could only be the sharpest distinction between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. As one theologian has said, the problem with Christians today is not that we are too awkward, but that we are not awkward enough. And I just wanna encourage any young Christians watching this morning, listening to this sermon, you should think about this. I'm really burdened for the young people in our church. I'm so thankful to God that it appears He has saved so many of you, He's working in you, your cultivating of spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits. I just want you to know such an encouragement to your pastors here at Emmanuel. This is, this is something we have celebrated in our elders meeting, something that is a great source of comfort and encouragement to us. And I feel a burden to really speak to you about your growth in discipleship, your sanctification, your growth in the faith. I want to encourage you, my young brother, my young sister, you need to be ready to be awkward for Jesus. I'm just asking you, are you prepared to embark on a life that will put you in the crosshairs of this world? Are you prepared to be charged with evil, to be charged with bigotry, to be called unloving and to be cruelly maligned as these saints were? There were teenagers in that church, I guarantee you, and as I said before, it was predominantly teenagers in John Owen's audience when he talked about killing and mortifying sin young Christians here, let me encourage you, do not resist the elements of Christian truth that invite the hatred of the world. So, you cannot somehow shave off the offensive bits of your faith. You can't put an Instagram filter over your faith. Uh, You you just can't somehow put some makeup on it and make it more attractive. You have to embrace the whole thing or nothing at all. And I just want to encourage you now, your home perhaps, maybe you're still even in your pajamas, you're with your family, I just want to encourage you in the safety of your home, safety of the context of a local church that loves you and pastors who love you, to decide, to choose, to stand for Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Whatever he says is true, my life is with him. I'm going for the way of the righteous, the pathway of discipleship. I am saying no to the course of this world. And look, if that puts me in the crosshairs of this world, uh, puts me in the sniper scope of Satan... That means I've got to fight and put to death the passions of my flesh, and I've got to take unpopular stances in the college classroom, or I've got to say things to my friends. I'm not going to the party, or I'm not going to live in this way. I'm going to stand for Jesus. I'm going to identify with him, and my conduct will be marked by holiness. I'm going to live as a sojourner and an exile. May the Lord help you in that. We, as your pastors, and we as a church, are here to support you in following Christ in that way. But now I want to highlight Peter's main point in all of this as we draw to an end of our exposition. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see Peter's goal here as he urges them to holiness, to holy public conduct, He is not saying, pursue good and acceptable conduct so that the world will think of you as awkward or so that you can continue to invite the disfavor of the world, though that's of course inevitable. That's going to keep happening. Rather, Peter's exhortation, his aim is missional. It's evangelistic. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, not in order to incite conflict, which you will, but so that they'll see your conduct and be drawn to it. So that they'll see your conduct and be so moved and changed that they will one day glorify God when He returns to judge the world. He wants these Christians to stand out for their good and excellent conduct, and that conduct is to have an evangelistic appeal and an apologetic power. Now, I'm aware there's some different interpretations of that last phrase that they may glorify God on the day of visitation but i do take it to mean that people are going people who've heard your, heard heard the gospel heard you speak to them about the truth they're going to see your conduct And your godly conduct is going to be attractive to them, to be winsome to them, and it's going to lend credence to the message that you preach. And people are going to come, and they're going to believe, and they're going to be saved, and then when God returns, when Jesus Christ comes to judge the world, there will be people there who were converted largely through your witness and the things that they saw in your life, and they'll give glory to God for what they saw in you. And what he then brought about in them. I think that's what Peter is saying. And one of the reasons I think that is because in subsequent chapters, we're going to see this is exactly how Christian conduct works. It has an evangelistic appeal. It has an apologetic power, like with the husbands in 1 Peter 3 who disobeyed the Word. How does Peter encourage them? He encourages the wives to seek to win the husbands by their chaste and respectable conduct, now he envisions, perhaps, that words have been said, but they're still disobedient to the word. He says, you may win them without a word by your godly and respectable conduct. Later on in chapter three, that famous passage where we're told to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us. What prompts that question? We'll look at this passage more carefully in a few weeks, but what prompts the question? Looking carefully at that passage, we see that it's it's the behavior of Christians that's prompting the question. It has an evangelistic focus, an evangelistic value. People see the conduct, the behavior of Christians, and they're prompted to ask, Why are you the way you are? How do you have hope? And you seem unmoved through this whole coronavirus pandemic, and you're not disturbed about it in the ways that I am. Where do you get that hope? How do you act the way that you act? Why? Man, do you talk to your husband in that way? Why do you talk to your wife in that way? Why do you live the way that you live? Why is this family so loving toward one another? Why do you behave toward one another in the church, deferring to one another, loving one another, giving your resources to one another? That public conduct has an attractive quality, a winsome quality, and it will lead people on the day of judgment when God visits this earth to give glory to him on that great and final day. What Peter is saying is that our good conduct as Christians, our holiness of life, is meant to be compelling and attractive to a watching world. There should be something about Christian conduct that is, in a holy way, handsome and bright and attractive. I think this is why, to a large extent, Jesus chose the images He chose in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What's he talking about? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What's the light? What's the light that's shining? It's the good works of Christian people. They see the light. They're drawn to the light. It brings light to the house so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Remember, Peter was there at the feet of the Lord as these words were said. They informed his theology and his perspectives. Now, he's saying, I think, the exact same thing to these Christians in 1 Peter 2, 11, and 12. Keep your conduct good excellent so that those who look on will see it. and The day will come when they will give glory to God on the day of visitation. Christians truly born again and made new by the Spirit of God, bearing fruit in lives of good works and godly conduct, have a certain appeal to this world. The world needs Christians to live holy lives. Our conduct should enhance and not hinder our Christian witness. Now, in the few minutes here that remain, I just want to give us three lines of application. We've seen the urgency of holiness of the Apostle Peter, the urgency of holiness for the sake of the soul, the urgency of holiness for the sake of Christian witness. Now, this is going to be enlarged upon in significant ways over the coming week. We're going to consider public conduct of Christians and how it comes to expression in varying relationships, but let's consider this morning in closing three brief lines of application. Number one... For the Christian, the world should feel like foreign territory to us. For the Christian, the world should feel I'm saying it is. It should feel like foreign territory to us. It should be the Christian's natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we do not truly belong here. Like that's, again, just Christian background music. That's always playing in the background. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles. In our current cultural moment, things are deteriorating quite rapidly, and Christian claims and convictions are going to be increasingly marginalized. Uh, To some, they will appear downright bigoted and antisocial. But my concern is with our reaction to these things. We should expect the hostility of the world. We know that this is not our home, but what should be our reaction? As increasingly the world feels like it's not our home, well, should we just freak out should we all kind of huddle together and wait out till Jesus comes back? Let me let Peter speak to us. I think this is so helpful in framing our thinking about a world that is feeling increasingly foreign to us. In 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Peter says this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Like, don't be surprised by the world's opposition. There's nothing strange about that. Verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, like when you get home and you see him face to face. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, you can see the, this is a man saturated in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that very thing, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We are, as Peter says, sojourners and exiles. Now I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I would guess we're going to find ourselves increasingly at home in the book of 1 Peter. Look I think as time goes on, again I could be wrong, but as the course of the world goes one way, the course of America goes one way, the course of our culture goes one way, 1 Peter's going to feel like this is us. We're going to feel greater and stronger affinity with the saints scattered in Asia Minor 2000 years ago. And we're going to feel more and more at home in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read that with new eyes as the world around us feels more and more like foreign territory. And I think, like the Christians of old, we will draw more and more comfort from the book of Revelation when we look ahead to that day when Christ will visit this earth and when the dwelling place of God will be with man and we will finally be home. We are, brother, sister, exiles. We are not home, and friends, to be taught that, to see that, it's not a bad thing. We are not home, and it is no curse from God to be shaken from that illusion. Now, does this have implications for our lives? Countless implications. The fact that we're exiles, the fact that we live as sojourners in the present age, the fact that we're not home yet, does that have implication for our marriages? Does it have implications for parenting? Does it have implications for how we spend our money? Does it have implications for how we think about retirement? Does it have implications for the priority we set on church gatherings? It has all kinds of implications. What would it mean to raise children as exiles? Parents think about that. What does a marriage look like in foreign territory where we're to have a wartime mentality? What does it look like to retire in exile? A lot of Christians say there's no such thing as retirement in the Bible, there's no such thing as retirement for the Christians, and I don't think that's right. I do believe in retirement. I believe that we enter retirement when our hearts stop beating. The Bible gives no place for the kind of retirement that looks like sipping lemonade on the beach, 25 years and doing not a solitary thing for Christ in the fourth quarter. We're not home yet, brothers and sisters. We are exiles and sojourners as long as we're in the world. Second point of application, we should expect the world's opposition, and we should respond with lives of love. We should expect the world's opposition and respond with lives of of love. What should be characteristic of Christians who encounter the hostility of the world? How should we respond when we encounter opposition, when we are slandered or maligned, when we experience the antagonism of the world? Well, I'll let Peter again speak to us, 1 Peter 3 verse 8. He's talking to us about public conduct and enduring the hostility of the world. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. First Peter 3 verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do good? Like I know you're experiencing the hostility of the world. But who's to harm you if you're zealous to do good and to live good and excellent and godly lives? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, not with a chip on your shoulder, not with a bitter tone, Not with a gotcha mentality on social media or something like that. Having a good conscience, Peter says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All I want to highlight here is that you don't see in any of this an eagerness to be up in arms when we're attacked. You don't see in any of this the desire to get even. The desire to engage in some kind of war with people, to return hostility with hostility. You don't see in any of this an effort to vindicate oneself. What do you see? What is it that is to mark Christians as they encounter the hostility of the world? It's grace and tenderness and humility, love, compassion, and kindness these things, brothers and sisters, tend to overturn evil and undo wrong. And more than that, these things win people. They adorn the gospel we profess. This is Jesus looking down from the cross at those who had put him there and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't fight for his rights. He didn't engage in hostilities. He said, Lord, forgive them. Kindness, grace, compassion we respond to the hostility of the world with lives of love thirdly and finally we who are christians should give a great deal of attention to our conduct before outsiders our public conduct how we live what can be seen by outsiders peter is encouraging these christians urging these christians to be more cognizant be more aware how you live before lost people, how you live before the Gentiles who speak evil of you, to be cognizant of their public conduct before a watching world, and he wants them to recognize how their good and honorable conduct has a bearing on their witness. Now, I just want to address here, I think two mistaken notions that I, I hear and see in, in, in the wider Christian world every now and again that I think this verse speaks into, this application speaks into. On the one hand, you have many Christians who think that in order to be evangelistically attractive and in order to be a good witness, in order to try to win the world, the strategy needs to be to, like, diminish as much as possible the evident difference between Christians and non-Christians. So, if we're going to win the world, we've got to kind of become like the world. And, And I shouldn't try to display uh, like holiness and some kind of gap between me and them uh, 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 in terms of, of moral good or something that's morally attractive or righteous. We should really diminish the differences. We're all sinners. Hey, I'm just like you. Hey, we can go and do the same things and do all the same stuff, and the difference is I've been forgiven. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see, first of all, that perspective is wholly unbiblical, But more than that, it robs the Christian faith of one of its greatest apologetic arguments. This is repeated again and again in the New Testament, that one of the things that draws people to the gospel, that attracts people to the truth, is seeing the effect of the truth and of the gospel on sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. We should not try to diminish what God has accomplished in His people. We should seek to live holy lives before outsiders, recognizing that we're called to do that in the Scriptures, first of all, and that this is one of the means by which people are actually drawn into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They should see. We want people to take notice of the difference Christ makes in the lives of believers for our marriages, for our families, for the way we work, for the way we study, for the way we engage on social media, for the way we speak to our neighbors, for the way we spend our money, for the way we care for the poor, for the way we love our neighbors. This is part of what makes Christian witness so compelling. A second notion that I think is mistaken, that I think this point helps us to understand. Okay, we're to give attention to our public conduct for the sake of its witness. I think that some Christians think that seeking to exude publicly holy conduct, is somehow prideful and self-righteous and at worst, pharisaical. Now, I want to acknowledge there's something true in that concern. None of us are to be like the Pharisees. None of us are to imitate them. But what was so wrong with the Pharisees? They loved the prominent places at the parties and at the gatherings and in the streets, and they loved to don certain clothing and certain markers of their purported piety. But what was wrong with the Pharisees? The problem with the Pharisees, brothers and sisters, is not that they were actually holy. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were fakers. They had the veneer of holiness and godliness, but they didn't have it in their hearts. They were, as Jesus says, whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombs. They were shiny on the outside, but they were corpses inside. We're not to be like that at all. But that's not at all the aim that Peter is commending to us. He's talking about genuine, sincere, authentic godliness, the product of the new birth and being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. We now are holy as God is holy, and we should not be negative about people seeing that and being drawn to that. Like, Like, here's... The Christian husband and wife who are seeking to live a gospel-centered Ephesians 5 marriage, and they have the unbelieving couple over to their home, they should not be negative about exuding the godliness of a Christian marriage. They should be very positive, very cognizant of the potential for that to exert an influence and a witness upon their lost neighbors. See the way they talk to each other. See the way they talk with the kids. See their conduct it's attractive, it's bright, it's like a light that shines. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not to hide that light under a bushel, we're to let it shine. Not in a way that's prideful and self-righteous and we just think we're the greatest thing ever, not that at all, but sincere, holy, godly conduct that gives credence to the message we preach and that draws people to the Christian community. Our aim is, is to show people the difference that Christ makes in our lives. We want to show people what God is like and what he can do for those who look to him in faith. Brothers and sisters, the wonder of the gospel is that through what Christ has done, through the new birth, God really does change people. God really does make a difference in our lives. When God calls men out of darkness into His marvelous light, He changes them after the image of that light. We go from one degree of glory to another. We're fashioned after the image of Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thing that Christ does. And the vision is that people will see that change. People will see what God has done in the lives of sinners saved by His grace. They'll be drawn to it. And they will be saved. Well, amen. We'll continue on in our exposition of 1 Peter 2 next week. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, please, please impress these things on our hearts. We pray that you would help us in our warfare against sin, that you would awaken us, alarm us to the urgency of abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Alert our minds and our souls to the warfare that takes place within, that we are being assaulted by the passions of the flesh and the wiles of the devil, and give us every weapon, every tool we need to fight. Fill us with vigor and with strength and confidence and grace to fight those passions of the flesh. Awaken us, stir us, and help us in the fight, we pray. I pray for anyone in our church who's drifting, none of us drifts into holiness. I pray that you would awaken them, you would awaken us and that you would sober us up, engage us in the fight and help us in that fight to be victorious. We pray, Father, that you would so work your grace in us, that increasingly our public conduct before this world would be bright and attractive. We know to expect the hatred and hostility of the world. We know to expect the world's opposition. That's normal. We don't think we're above our master. We know they hated you. They're going to hate us. But Lord, as your witness and your posture was so stainless and peerless and beautiful and attractive, the way you did not revile and return, the way you were gracious and kind and compassionate, may we imitate you in this as we encounter the world's hostility and the world's hatred. And may we see the light shine forth from this place and through the lives, of the members of this church. and May people be drawn to it. May there be an attractive and bright quality about our conduct in this world. Do this for our good, for the sake of the lost, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you for logging on. God willing, we'll see you in person next week. Let me close with a benediction. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forevermore, world without end. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters.